good to see Adna here and Alison, thank you for coming. Um, as Stanley inferred, this is really uh, a sort of a transitional talk between what I wrote about in that book and what I'm trying to write about now, which is aspects of how the brain controls uh, instinctual behavior. This new book is called Common Sense, of which uh, it turns out that there isn't very much about. So, but my interest in this began, I'm not a, I'm not by, um, not by vocation a um, anthropologist or a, or a uh, individual who's well-schooled in the epidemiology of these things, but I've been interested in this subject coming from the position of a physician and also from the standpoint of the way in which living in America for 25 years, the culture has changed. And so I grew up here in England and I have this interesting uh, situation where I am sort of both an insider in the US but also an outsider. And so there's this constant shifting of ground where I wonder about certain things. And this book actually grew out of another book that I had written which was much more in the vein of psychiatry. It was called A Mood Apart, which was largely about the, um, how the brain generates emotion and how it becomes disordered in certain illnesses, particularly manic depressive disease and depression. And it was actually out of that book, during the crisis of the dot-com bubble, when everything was extraordinarily hyperactive in the US, exuberant as um, Greenspan said, that my editor said, oh, you should write about this because it looks like mania. And in fact, if you think about it, it does. So the title of this book is not literally that Americans are manic, but in fact, that it's a metaphor for the type of cultural shift which occurred, which is what I will talk about today. So uh, as you can see from the, from the uh, little um, picture there, which is taken from The Economist, uh, there is a linkage to the work that you do here, especially in obesity, and that will become apparent towards the end. So I don't know whether you can read that from the back, but um, what I shall do is go through uh, a series of ideas and try to answer a couple of questions. The premise of all this is that as living creatures, and social systems too, are dynamic systems of order. They make their own order. So that's what life is, and that's what a living system, including a market, is. And I would argue that material affluence is an experience which we have not had as a uh, species in the mass affluence that you see, particularly in the US and in some other countries. If you look at what markets really are, of course, they are the integration of the dynamics of many, many individuals. And that is a classical opinion of most economists, and particularly of Adam Smith, we'll talk about a lot. But the interesting thing is that there have been cultural shifts recently which have completely changed the way in which the market works, I think. And uh, they've impacted individual behavior, and I shall talk particularly about obesity, but also about public health in general. And then I will move to what the new book is about briefly, which is affluence and how we can think about it in a somewhat different way. And I'm very much um, in debt to uh, Professor Offer in this regard, whose excellent book actually brought me in an indirect way to Oxford because we started to correspond and then and then you told me of your obesity project and I ended up here, essentially. So, the best way to think about human behavior, I think, is to consider it from the evolutionary perspective because only then can you really understand the way in which the human brain works. At the core of the brain, I come up here, I can um, 
let's get a pencil or something, that the core of the brain is a, a very ancient structure, which is essentially millions of years old and, and, and similar to that which lizards have today or pigeons or any other small creature that came, uh, has that evolutionary background. And then wrapped around it is a primitive cortex, which was the cortex that began first with the, the small mammals and which you still find in small mammals today. And then wrapped around that, which is really an extension, a growth of that, is what we call the neo-mammalian cortex, which is, which is the human cortex par excellence, especially in its development here in the frontal lobes, which is what makes the human uh, so. Well, primates primates are, are right here. These are the primates. Uh, but, the, but we, in our primate line, the hominid line, it's the frontal lobes that distinguish us. Sorry, I don't know whether we can go back on that. We tried this problem before, didn't we? Well, the one that we missed, which actually was uh, useful. Then we can go back. Uh, it doesn't like to go back, apparently. Well, the mouse will make it go back. Well, there we go. Thank you. Yes. So, in this in this uh, hominid line, most of the most of the creatures had uh, a very large cortex. But compared to ourselves, their cortex, the frontal lobe in the human, compared to the rest of the cortex, is about thirty-seven percent of the volume. And so this creature, the Neanderthal, which it now turns out we may have cohabited with, as you probably saw the recent German studies, uh, has a pretty large cortex, but ours is even bigger. And we're, and, and we're clever enough to be able to have created all sorts of interesting tricks which have changed the culture in which we live. And it's dramatically changed. If, for those of us who live in affluent societies, and I use um, Avner's definition of that, not just material affluence, but a continuous stream of novel information which is easily accessed. This particular definition, uh, if you think about it, there are about um, 800, 900 million people in the world, mainly living in, in Western Europe, uh, Japan, and the US and Canada, which who live in extraordinary affluence. And you can see that if you boil it down to this little anecdote of a village of a hundred people, then most of the world's material resources would be owned by a very small percentage. Something even in this year, these days of cell phones, you know, it's only about um, uh, thirty percent of the population who ever made a telephone call. If you think about the six billion people in the world, so we live in very affluent circumstances. And we live, of course, within a culture of market structures. And so one of the things that has interested me is how do markets really work? Well, markets are a natural evolution of human behavior. We didn't invent them. They became, they were what they are by the natural process of evolution. And I don't have time to go into it, but you look, if you look at the very early markets, the gifting systems were very similar to that which we uh, experience today, except of course we now have attached the abstract concept of money. But the, as Smith said in the 18th century, the market itself is just a, a function of the many, many uh, detailed interactions of individuals. The classic phrase, the truck barter and exchange is an instinctual drive for human beings. Well, if you break that idea down and you look at it in the context of neuroscience, then you get to this cartoon which, on the one side, self-interest, curiosity, and social ambition, which are instinctual reward-driven behaviors and are based upon individual freedom in the democratic sense, that you have to give people the opportunity to do things that benefit themselves in order to have this side of the equation work. And on the other side, you have what Smith thought was the controlling function, which is the social interaction among people, 
so that individuals do not do things that are likely to cause extraordinary grief to others or make them angry because they are also very concerned about living within this social structure. So Smith's idea was, and this was the metaphor of the invisible hand, that these two things left to themselves would self-regulate. If we look more closely at that then, and you take it back to the diagram I showed you before, then obviously the survival aspects of human behavior are in that very primitive core of the brain, and the abstract social sentiment is in the most highly developed part of the brain. That isn't to say that, that the primates and others don't have, um, or even smaller furry animals, don't have complex social behaviors. They do. But our social behavior is so much greater than anybody else's in this particular line that it's um, remarkable. We, for example, have to keep in our heads the interrelationships of literally tens, if not hundreds, of people. And in order to do that, you need a very big brain, and you need to keep it very organized. And so you, not only do you need the cortex and the ability to, to remember all that, but you also need to be able to sort it out, which is what happens in the executive part of the brain, the frontal lobe of the brain. So this instinctual side is driven, actually, by a very primitive system, by what's called the dopamine system. and that is important not only in self-interest, but in curiosity, in the competition for resources and social ambition. All of these elements of the marketplace drivers are in fact under the control of these very simple systems, which are about 10% of the brain's neurons. They start in the most basic, most primitive part of the brain, and they arborize out to control in a modulatory way the rest of the central nervous system and you can see them rising up here. The most, there are three main superhighways, norepinephrine, serotonin, which you probably have read a lot about, but the main one is this reward system from, which is driven by dopamine in this particular context that I'm discussing here. And one of the interesting things, of course, is that uh, given that we have this ancient uh, competitive drive to survive, we're always wanting more. We, it's a natural instinct for us, and we, we reference our future on the basis of today. It's not that we're doing much better than we were 100 years ago, but it's how am I doing today, or even how am I doing in relation to the person next door to me, about the old joke of the man who is happy is one who earns a little more than his brother-in-law. So if you see surveys like this, always, People say, I'd like a little bit more than I have, even though there's a, a fairly uh, steady increment in the resources that people have available to them. So if you go back to the other side of this coin, that's the, the, this, this balance, that's the instinctual side. You go back to the other side of this balance, and you find that this is much more delicate. The impartial spectator, which Smith wrote a lot about, is in fact what we would call the conscience. And this conscience uh, comes back to what I mentioned earlier, which is that we, we very much like, want to be liked by other people. And so we spend a great deal of time managing our affairs so that we are not uh, forced into an outlying position. He, uh, he, he said uh, in his book, um, the moral sentiments, the man we naturally love the most is he who joins to his own selfish feelings the most exquisite, exquisite sensibility of others. And of course, we know that we are social, social creatures. This is a wedding that went on in that little um, uh, courtyard in the, near the flat that I'm living in, in Glenham Palace. And you can see it, extraordinary diversity, great colors. Uh, I think it was a an Indian family at the core, but you can see all sorts of different people uh, together there, including a horse. So empathy and social constraint are based upon the social context, but they're mainly learned. You can see in this particular picture in the primate that this young child is being petted by another primate, but the mother is very carefully making sure that it isn't petted too heavily. 
And of course, we do the same thing. This is actually um, a, a picture of, a, of another wedding, the wedding of one of my daughters. Um, this is a bigger sister, and this is my granddaughter when she was about um, six months old. But the point is that if you look at what the little child is doing, she's looking at me because I'm taking a flash photograph. Yes, that, that attracts her. Her mother is looking at the child. Her aunt is looking at the brother. The brother is looking at his cousin, etc. Everybody is looking at everybody else. And that is, in fact, how the interaction begins. So the social cueing that we are um, managing our lives with begins by facial expression and then is taken into the brain and slowly over a period of time, I won't explain this slide in, in detail, but what happens is that the so-called mirror neurons, which you may have read something about, slowly begin to shape, change the instinctual drive so that what eventually happens is that you modulate the experience, the raw experience of the survival concept so that all of us, when we're adults and mature and able, can constrain ourselves. We can say, oh, well, I'm not going to uh, get out my chocolate bar right now because I'm in the middle of listening to this particular talk, even though you might be wanting to get out your chocolate bar because it's getting close to lunch, etc., etc. So constraint is something which is taught. Instinct is something which you don't have to be taught. So these are the brakes of the engine, if you follow me, and this is the and this is the drive. And the invisible hand is a balance that must be struck between the two if the market is to work in the concept that Smith put forward. Well, in 1776, when he wrote his famous book, The Wealth of Nations, that was highly probable because it was an agrarian economy. This is actually um, where I ended up when I went to America in New England. And it was built in 1777, this house, and it's still much the same. Uh, it snows madly in the winter and nobody can get around. Everybody helps each other. <coughs> the community is only about a thousand people and so on and so forth. So the socially knit communities, and especially the constraints of climate, geography, and distance, in those days actually made the market work in an odd way because the self-interest was constrained, confined by these factors. But unfortunately, Homo sapiens <coughs> is not what the average economist would have you believe, which is that uh, we are rational, straightforward, maximizing creatures who will always make rational decisions to our own advantage and do so consistently over time. That, in fact, is not the case. So we do work quite well in this agrarian economy that I was talking about, but it has begun to fall apart. But in the first place, let me just give you one instance. There are many, but let's just, just give you one instance of why it is that we're not, we're not rational uh, creatures in the um, extrapolating sense of the word. So take time, for example. If you have a reward system, then theoretically, if our... If our, uh, if our behavior were consistent, you would think you would have an exponential curve. It doesn't matter whether there would be a smaller, sooner reward or a larger, later reward. The larger, later reward would always win because obviously that's worth waiting for. But in fact, what really happens is it's hyperbolic that, that we, as, as um, Avner says, we're myopic. What happens is that when the, when the short-term opportunity arises, there comes a point when it outvotes the longer-term one. And this is you can illustrate this yourself anytime you wish by going down to the local restaurant, having a fairly large meal, and then being offered dessert, which I won't go into the complications as to why desserts are always more interesting than, than even than when, when you're full although there are good neuroscience reasons for that. But, of course, this, this plate of chocolate cake that's placed in front of you, I remember a, a restaurant which we go to regularly in Los Angeles. One evening we had a wonderful meal together on a Sunday evening, and the fellow who we know very well who runs the restaurant 
wanted us to try his cheesecake. And we said, oh, no, no, we're very full. We don't want it. And, uh, in fact, uh, he then we took the bill, and then he came back a few minutes later with a plate of his cheesecake because he really wanted us to try it. He put it on the table, and in two seconds, it was gone. And, and so uh, this is the emotional limbic response, which you all know. This is the rational response, but this one, this is, this is the, this is the, the, the where the short-term advantage overcomes the rational self. That's one of the reasons why, when we have markets that are constantly in our face, we buy many more things than we need. So we have then this long-term rational self, but it's mainly powered by uh, social learning, and then we've got the reptilian side, which is constantly getting in the way of, uh, uh, of our um, rational behavior, but unfortunately is exploited dramatically by the consumer systems that we live in, in this country, and particularly in the US. So let's talk a little bit about those cultural shifts. 20 years ago, 30 years ago almost, um, with uh, England and the US both having had a social democratic type of government for a while, and we may be moving back to it again now in England, uh, a new idea, which wasn't new at all, came to Mrs. Thatcher and to Reagan, which said, let's take the brakes off and let's go for individual liberty again. And so in America, this became called, this became known as the American business model. Well, of course, America is very chauvinistic. Self-interest is the engine. You've already heard about that. Market fundamentalism, we don't, we, we must not interfere with the market. Uh, minimal government oversight, which means that you don't move money around uh, from uh, people who earn it to people who, who, who need it. And there's low taxation. If you put that system in place, uh, then you have a liberal marketplace. But in addition, at about the same time, some other very interesting cultural things happened. One is that the competing uh, social organization, that of communism, fell uh, in, the, in, in the sense that communist Russia, um, the Soviet Union fell, and China decided that they were going to go into the market business themselves. And we also developed the World Wide Web, which meant that suddenly the physical constraints disappeared, especially in terms of moving market, moving money around. And we could uh, work 24 hours a day if we wish, which we could do now. You know, I, you know, I live here now. Uh, my emails start rushing about 5 o'clock from Los Angeles, 5 p.m., I should say. So I work in England for the first eight hours, and then for four or five hours I work with UCLA and um, try to go to bed at a reasonable time. So the whole issue of the constraints of geography and distance have disappeared, or largely disappeared. At the same time, the, the engine has revved up in terms of consumerism, and we now have extraordinary choice, which is actually quite confusing to human beings because we're not very good at um, making choices among, for example, 1,260 varieties of shampoo. I usually joke that I have no hair, and that's a big advantage in that particular instance. But I won't go through these details, but the fact is that if you look at all the parameters in a house, for example, they've all gotten larger in the US, uh, but uh, they, the number of people living in those houses has actually declined. And there are other interesting things which we have inadvertently done in order to foster growth in the economy, which have changed the way in which people behave. Take the credit card system, for example, in the US. There are very few debit card systems in the US because the banks make a great deal of money on the credit cards. And what happens is that you can now get a credit card sent to you in your front door. In fact, you'll get several, probably a month, which offer you the opportunity to start a credit system with this company that will have no um, necessity to pay anything off until the end of uh, you know, 2011 or something. But what they don't tell you is that if you default on this, you will in fact be paying 40% uh, interest. And so one of the things that Mr. Obama has done since he became president, for example, is he has forced the banks into into telling you what that interest really is. 
And so I got my credit card the other day. I think I owed something like you know, $5,000 for a few air trips and so on and so forth. So and I pay it off every month. But there's now a little box which says if you pay off at the minimal amount, then in fact what will happen is that you will pay this off in 30 years and you will have paid $19,000. Uh, if you pay it off at twice, it'll take only 12 years and you'll have paid, etc., etc. So I mean, that, is, that is the sort of reality that one doesn't get when you look at this. But what we do know is that the profits of the banks and the um, credit card companies have grown enormously. And then if you throw in for a little spice, uh, the whole, you know, I want to be a millionaire on the television, uh, and the notion that celebrities have the best things and they all love Gucci bags and so on. Soon you've got something growing which begins to look like an addiction. This is actually, one of my daughters is a vet and she lives in a small town up in New York. And this was on the front page of the newspaper when I went there for Thanksgiving. In America, Black Friday is given the name, it's the day after Thanksgiving and it's given the name because that's when, it's just because about a month before Christmas, and it's how the, how the uh, merchants basically go into the black uh, for the whole year when, when that Christmas period begins. And you can see here the extraordinary rush, which is being driven uh, by the consumer need, which is essentially an addictive behavior. So John Kenneth Barrow Braith, uh, bless his uh, departed soul, uh, always puts it beautifully, so the American consumer now buys things they don't want at prices they can't afford to impress people they don't know because of advertising they don't believe. It's not quite that, but it's close. The statistics are, from this is from John Kay, who's an English uh, um, economist, that the, the, the American individual spends approximately 24500 uh, a year um, in consumption. This, these are data from 2004. Uh, the UK, for example, is about a third less than that. And if you look at the highest in Europe, it's, it's Switzerland, which is, I think, close to 18,000 in, in, in this particular uh, set of data. And uh, the interesting thing is that in terms of productivity uh, output per hour, in terms of an uh, exchange rate, um, you find that America this is a bit of an outlier because of their oil, but, but in general, most of the productivity of Europe is similar to the productivity of the average working person in America. So it's not that um, we Americans are more productive, it is that we work a lot harder. And so the average American spends six, about six weeks longer at work each year than do people living in Europe on, on, on average. And of course, if you're in that circumstance where you're spending a lot more, you're earning about the same, even if you worked harder, you can't save anything. And so what you see is that not only is there a large uh, national debt, but also a, um, uh, a declining savings rate, which interestingly enough, since the recession, has ticked back up again. So people are beginning to now use their frontal cortex and say, I can't go on like this, and they're starting to save again. It's about two, between two and three percent, I think now. So then, if you put this into a model, a physiological model, then I think what we're looking at is a is a positive feedback loop, which, as most of you know, if you know in physiology, is a very dangerous thing because it essentially ends up with imploding uh, and. It starts by revving up this instinctual brain that I told you about, the self-interest, the competition, the curiosity, and you, you, you spice it up with the fast new world, as I called it in the American Mania book, which is novel technology, commercial opportunity, and this extraordinary loss of constraint. And this gives you a hyperactive response. People become frenzied. They are working 24 hours a day. Some of them are working two jobs. They're not seeing their families. They man and wife hardly talk to each other if they're still married, etc., etc. And this whole thing keeps itself going because the merchant has to continue to find new things to sell. We now have an iPad. I cannot see the benefit of an iPad over uh, a Mac 
computer and an iPhone myself, but somewhere in the middle, um, Mr. Jobs has thought that might sell. Apparently, they've already sold a million. So it's the novelty aspect. Again, the debt financing just keeps the whole system moving. The thing that you lose is time, of course, which is the only thing that people own. It's the only thing that we, if you give me, you've given me your time today, I can't repay you for that. You've lost it forever. So I'm hoping <coughs> it's going to be worth it for you. The social sentiment then becomes much less important in a society like this. And self-love, using Smith's concepts, become dominant. And the social balance shifts. And that's what I think has been happening in the last decade, which has now made everybody begin to, to put on the brakes and say, wait a minute, what is, what is going wrong here? So, so to summarize, a technology-driven 24-7 world with diminished physical constraint, a business model that fosters individualism and material affluence and abundance, which is novel to the human experience, these are things that Smith could not foresee. They are logically, uh, logically they will cause what we, have, what we now find ourselves in, but nobody saw it coming, and certainly if you adhere to the 18th century philosophy, it's not surprising. Now, it gets even worse, and I'm not going to talk about this in detail, but if you think about the finance industry, which is where you've abstracted this concept completely, so that the, the relationship between social order and instinct is essentially completely fragmented, what you find is that the ingenious people are now dreaming up all sorts of curious um, systems whereby they can essentially gamble at the edge and you find these increasing bubbles, which um, uh, I think you'll read a lot about them in various magazines like the uh, FT and The Economist and so on. So what is the impact of all this on the public health? Well, it's quite profound. I'm just going to pick one area, which is obesity, because I know that's of your interest. But we start with what has it done in America to the average individual. But if you look at the, the data sets, uh, almost all the elements which we would consider a social infrastructure have been eroded. They may be coming back slowly now, but we'll see how Obama does in his fights with the right wing of the, um, uh, the Republican Party. But uh, he has put in place potentially a healthcare system, which will be the first comprehensive healthcare system that America has ever seen, although they've been trying to get one for 100 years. But if you look at the way in which income swings, the minimum wage, pensions, job tenure, life and health insurance, all these things have been declining and moving to individual responsibility away from a social insurance. Now, there's nothing wrong with that except. It's virtually impossible, of course, to pay for your own health out of pocket these days because if you happen to get a serious illness, then you're going to go bankrupt. In fact, most of the bankruptcies in America are driven by, by uh, health-related problems. So what, what you see is, and again, I'm not going into the details, you see this cascade of problems which start with the increasing stress, go through to growing indebtedness, and that becomes a feedback loop similar to the positive loop I was showing you before. I mean, this is at the individual level. And you can look at this in terms of the elements um, and realize that when we talk about obesity, for example, and I showed some of these slides when we had the conference uh, which um, Stan and Adam put on, um, you could see that obesity is not an isolated issue. It's embedded in all these other social issues. Now, stress is a very big one. And stress is important because it is essentially the transducer in the body whereby the environment, especially the social environment these days, is impacts the various physiological systems which if they are in balance, we are healthy, and if they're not in balance, we're unhealthy, and we feel unhealthy. Now, there are three fundamental systems. There's the immune system, the endocrine system, 
and the autonomic system. And I spent my research career in this area here, to some degree in this area. And what you find is that the brain controls all of those, and in return, they feed back upon the brain. So, for example, the acute stress response is designed to prevent you from dying if you happen <coughs> to meet a tiger in the woods, which hasn't happened in Oxford, I understand, for a while. So, the system turns on very quickly, and the adrenaline will make this is what happens when you suddenly get startled. You feel this, this rush, this strange sort of tingling down the back of your neck. And, um, and then you, somebody says, oh, you've gone white. This is the adrenaline rushing around your body. Then shortly after that, the cortisol begins to kick in. And then it's designed so that, that and cytokine release, which is, which is part of the immune system that helps clean up if you do get hurt, etc., etc. This lasts a very short time. And theoretically, the, the stress will pass, and it will all go back down to normal again. Now, if you're living in a social stressor, which is continuously repeating itself, then this, the alarm bells never go off. And the result of that is you see anxiety emerging. And the anxiety is then followed by depression if it's not resolved. And so if you look at the basic statistics, uh, the epidemiological studies, I should say, uh, in America, you find that now about 28% of the population complain of anxiety or depression, whereas in fact in a place like Norway, it's about 13, I think. So uh, people in my generation here are less likely to be depressed than people in my daughter's generation. Now one of the big variables, which is much easier to measure, is, 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 is weight, is obesity. And that, of course, has been going like a steam train. It's, it, it, it started to rise, as we know from work that um, Stanley and Anna have, have promoted at their conference. It started to rise much earlier in, in the US, probably um, way back in the 20s, as affluence began to emerge. But it accelerated in the last uh, 20 years. And you can see this in the US by the way in which it moves across the country. It seems to go from, from east to west. Maybe that's because people in the west living in a sunny climate don't wear as many clothes and therefore they get more conscious of their bodies. But 70% of Americans spend less than 30 minutes a day exercising. And by that, I mean walking from their car to their house, not going to a gym. And, uh, and so, whoops, it's going to give up on me. Um, the next slide will show that it's very similar in England. Yes. Ah, okay, yeah, should I just show that? If you just fill the buttons. That one right here. That one just toward the Okay, very excellent. So, um, the, in England it's exactly the same situation, although it's not as severe yet. But we are getting bigger, and um, children are getting fatter, and that's very important because when children get fat, uh, they, they find it extremely difficult to lose it later in life. And when young women get fat and have babies, the chances of their diabetes in their children is much, much higher. So we come back then to this cartoon again. And uh, as, um, again, uh, your leaders here have suggested, uh, you could explain this as a stress issue, or you could explain it as a food shock hypothesis, which is that fast food has become so cheap that people are now just, it is very tasty that people are eating it. Or perhaps it's a combination. And what I would add to it, as I did earlier in our discussions, is that I think sleep debt has to be paid attention to as well, because the fact is that sleep is one of the first things that people erode when they get into a, um, uh, a stressful situation where they feel they don't have enough time. And so the average American now deprives themselves of two hours sleep a week, a night, and catches up at the weekends if they're lucky. And so all this feeds back in together. We use more caffeine. As I will show you in a moment, we tend to be more interested in fast foods if we're sleep deprived, etc. And we also actually have a much worse stress response. So 
you will know yourself that if you stay up all night or you have you, you, you have a very late night and you have to get up early in the morning, very often during the day you think, my goodness, I'm getting a cold because you feel sort of strange and prickly. And that's because what's happened is that your pro-inflammatory cytokine response has gone way up and that is exactly what happens when you get a, a, a virus or you get a bacterium. So it's extraordinary and it's an extraordinary stressor. So quickly to go through the data regarding the sleep, because some of you may have seen these before when I presented before. Um, the interesting thing is that sleep duration has declined, especially in young people, uh, so that now 37-40% of the population in America sleep less than seven hours a night. Most people need to sleep somewhere between eight and nine when they're younger. Uh, and at the same time, the obesity has doubled. So it, there seems to be a very interesting correlation between obesity and sleep deprivation. And one of the interesting things there is that endocrinologically, when you deprive somebody of sleep, you actually lower serum leptin, which is one of the things that decreases appetite. And serum ghrelin goes up. So ghrelin increases, leptin decreases, and this is we don't quite know the mechanism yet, but this is inducive to uh, uh, obesity. Also, if you go to the laboratory and you keep people in the laboratory and you feed them uh, various diets at the same time as you restrict their sleeping, you find that even healthy young men uh, have changes in their endocrine systems, particularly uh, TSH and cortisol, the usual diurnal rhythm flattens. And one of the interesting things is that their carbohydrate tolerance is impaired. In other words, if you give them a load of carbohydrate intravenously, they find it much more difficult to metabolize it than they do when they are not sleep deprived, which is very similar to what happens in early diabetes. The other interesting thing is that people complain of increased hunger when they come out of these types of experiments. And their appetite is particularly for high carbohydrate, salt, etc., etc. The neurosurgeon at UCLA, whom I know well, uh, I think I presented these to his department. He was telling me that afterwards, that when he's been on call all night, the first thing he wants to do is to go and have a hamburger, which is the way he feels um, in the morning. So what's happened then is that our cultural shift has forced the cursor over so that now there are more people in the vulnerability component of the bell-shaped curve. And that's, I think, in part why we are seeing the obesity that we have. So, as Abner again has said in the title of his book, affluence is a challenge. It's because we do not make consistent choices. I mean, if, if, if it were simple enough that the, we all realize we're getting fat, therefore we stopped eating and we told our children to eat better food and so on, that would be simple enough, but it's not that simple. And so what we have to do is to figure out in the society that we now have, because we can't go back to the 18th century, how can we satisfy immediate desires and particularly, I think, novelty, and at the same time balance out the individual's interests and the society's interests? And this is no easy task. <coughs> First, we have to accept some of the oddities of who we are as evolved natural creatures. We are short-term reward-seeking animals. And if we don't accept that, and build an environment that takes that into account, then we are going to continue to have this type of problem that we are talking about today. So it's really an issue of do we allow people to invest in the immediate, if you're talking about chocolate cake, for example, or think about you know, down the road and being healthy in 20 years' time. There's nothing wrong with the chocolate cake, it's just that you can't eat it every night. Well, we're beginning to grab hold of this. If you look at the adolescence, for example, and we understand the importance of the frontal lobe, this is an advertisement from Allstate, which is an American company, and maybe it's here too. But the idea is that uh, 
uh, you know, the, the frontal lobe actually doesn't really develop until you're about 20 or 21 and, uh, in, its, in its final form. So that it's a rather interesting cartoon, which is that there's a piece missing from the average adolescent's frontal lobe, and that is, in fact, uh, why they have so many accidents, which, of course, they do. You can tell an adolescent now, we don't want you to drive and drink. We don't want you to be crazy with your friends. Uh, and they'll say to you, of course not. I understand that. I'm not going to do that. But you put them in the situation, and it's a totally different circumstance. They come out of the party. They're a little lit. You know, they all get excited. They're driving fast. And before long, one's hit the wall. So it's, it's a matter of planning. We have these things even for adults. I noticed that in England, in, in England you're ahead of us. You've got these wonderful systems where if you go into Woodstock, you're, you're driving at 30, 32 miles an hour, a little uh, camera sign goes on, and then this sign goes on and says slow down. And then if you don't slow down, they'll take a picture, and you will be sent a large bill. So this is actually moving from the monitoring aspects this is Gray's Anatomy's picture of one of the frontal lobes. There's another one here. From the monitoring aspects to the, the deciding area in the lateral part of your cortex, which is the most recently developed part, which says, oh, I don't want to get a ticket. Slow down. So it, in fact, it, it, it decreases the instinctual drive for the excitement of driving fast. Uh, Morgan Kriegelbach, who's at Queens, he's a brilliant young man has uh, done some interesting work and analyzed the work of others, which shows that it's, it's the back of the frontal lobes which actually assess all the in, inflow from the sensory systems of touch and, 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 and taste and, uh, and sight and hearing and so on. And then these are monitored in the medial part of the lobe and then evaluated, looked at the reward, the pleasure part of it, and then here, they are evaluated and it's decided whether or not one should go forward with eating the chocolate cake or resist eating the chocolate cake. So we can actually reduce some of these dilemmas, these social dilemmas, to a neuroscience um, point, not so that they can be changed, but so we can understand what's happening to us and not see it as just a moral issue, which is what we've seen it as for a long, long time. So in the final couple of slides then, what happens in an addictive situation is you see that the frontal cortex essentially goes to sleep. And what happens is that the instinctual side of the brain, the old reptilian part of the brain, actually is much more active. And again, uh, in the interest of time, I won't go into it, but you can see red is very little activity. So here is the ventral medial opening frontal cortex for somebody who's addicted. And what happens to them when you give them a set of cards where it becomes readily apparent to the individual who's um, thinking normally that if you take the low-risk cards, you're going to make money. If you take the high-risk cards, you will not make money. That never quite occurs to these people because they don't think about it in the way that, they, that the rest of us do. And so you see their performance actually gets worse, whereas in fact, in a normal person, it gets better as they do repeated trials. So, summarizing then, the important thing is that markets used to be a way in which we actually shaped human behavior. It was, it, if you'll remember, those of us who are old enough in the room, I remember the market when I grew up in just outside in a small village outside of St. Albans in Hertfordshire. A local merchant, I knew him and he knew me and you know, I wasn't going to steal sweets from him. And he taught me how if I bought broken uh, 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 chips I could get more for my money than if I bought whole ones, etc. Et so markets used to shape the way we behave. And the other thing that used to shape our behavior is just eating food around a table together. Uh, Americans now spend more time driving around in a car than they do eating around a table. And now, of course, we've got Facebook, which is um, uh, thought to replace some of these things, but as you've read recently, there is also a commercial enterprise which is beginning to have some dark side to it. But how do we, how do we go from where we are to something that makes more sense? Well, this is a slide that Stanley put me on to, which is 
if you think about obesity, then there are all sorts of things you can do. You can monitor all the way down to eliminating choice. And one of the big problems in a, a social democracy is how do you find that balance? You know, do we, do we ban advertising? Do we restrict um, in certain areas, fast food uh, joints, etc.? These are very complicated decisions. And, and so that becomes uh, a big major question that we have to ask ourselves. And then, of course, there are other things which, especially in the US, who likes to avoid uh, such discussions, um, is that we can use new technologies to help ourselves. So what I call outsourcing the lateral um, frontal cortex. Uh, a friend of mine who works for Frog Design in New York has recently come up with a system where you can use your iPhone to uh, collect a series of folks who are your friends. And then, when you're sitting in front of the chocolate cake, you press one button and it goes out to all these friends saying, I'm being tempted now by this chocolate cake. What should I do? And so it rings randomly, and, you know, 25 different phones go off, and then three of them pick it up and say, don't do it, or whatever. <laughs> so the idea is that they, you then, as I say, outsource the lateral prefrontal cortex and, and you get reinforcement from the family that you used to have around the table. You're not eating anymore tonight, you've had enough, etc., etc. It's, it's both a comment upon the way we've come to culturally, I think, and it also is an interesting way in which we have to begin to think about technology as a, a possible solution for certain countries who are not willing to do what basically Norway has done, which is to, and perhaps this is you know, culturally um, idiosyncratic, uh, that uh, maybe those of us who come from the Anglo-Saxon tradition uh, uh, America and the, U and the UK, for example, are, are different in the way in which we organize our social behaviors. And for a long time, that's been an extraordinary element to our success uh, in terms of competition. But now, it may be that we need to be more socially integrated. And if you look at these statistics, you can see that in Norway, the obesity is very low, but there are lots of other interesting things in terms of the way the number of hours worked, the number of uh, ways in which we uh, have children in poverty, the number of people in prison compared to the US. I mean, there, there's, a, there's a totally different social order here, and we have to ask which do we prefer going forward. So that's one of, this is one of my favorite slides, and I, that uh, this is just um, David having returned home after two years in uh, a fine art museum in the US. So thank you very much. That's it. There's a little bit more stuff on our website that um, you might be interested in, but otherwise that's it. Okay, thank you very much, Peter. Okay.